In chapter 21, some call it the triumphant entry. We begin in verse, with verse 1, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, Gentile, and mounted on a donkey, or gentle, excuse me, and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, the fowl of a um, beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the coat, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. How amazing it is to have two of the most significant figures of history appear in the same generation of human history. We have one who is the imperial man who destroyed Cato's romantic dream, the dream of the old republic and its freedom. This man was Augustus, the divine Caesar, if you will. This man was the one who took the world by surprise. But also, there is another man. This other man was the son of God. Augustus shattered his foes by force and inaugurated a new era. But he brought an armatus to the uh, weary world. And uh, it was unable to usher in this golden age that they were looking for. Stauffer, or Stauffer described it this way. Augustus could bind the dragon, but he couldn't slay it. Well, the second man, born in the little troubled town, of Israel, where even Caesar couldn't control it, couldn't keep peace there, complete peace. This man was the one that Isaiah foresaw in Isaiah 9, 6 as the Messiah. After having overcome the temptation uh, to follow the path of Satan, this one, Jesus Christ, he moved firmly and fearlessly to the conflict of the cross, the crucifixion. 
There he would wrest the, the kingdom of, uh, you know, uh, this ancient dragon, that, this earth, uh, from him. And he would bring in, eventually, the millennial kingdom, preparing for the millennial kingdom. And so this man, this humble son of man, who came to serve and not be served, at least this first time, is in truth the divine Caesar, the Son of God. So what does that make Calvary? That makes Calvary the hinge of history. It is there that the decisive conflict between the city of God and the earthly city occurred. It was there that the kingdoms of the world became indeed the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah. So one th the first thing that we're going to be looking at today, and it's so very important, is prophecy fulfilled. It's so important to recognize this and to acknowledge it because we need to look at the Scripture as the inerrant Word of God. And the inerrant Word of God was given to prophets of old to prophesy of this first coming. And it's so important to recognize that Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy. Because if we don't, then Jesus Christ becomes just a mere man, a good teacher for many, another prophet. In Matthew 21, we have recorded for us the humble coronation of Jesus. Many today who hold the title king and, and queen are often rulers only in name or in name only having very little governmental power or responsibility. An elaborate coronation, if you will, is the only real notice for these people. Notice of splendor that has any type of magnificent consequence. The great splendor and pageantry is primarily displayed for them to be recognized as royalty at their coronation. Matter of fact, in 1838, Queen Victoria of England wore a crown encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires that surrounded a 309-carat diamond. Her scepter and uh, was capped off with an even larger diamond, they said, cut from the star of Africa and weighed 516 and a half carats. Wow. Splendor. Coronation. Not necessarily that they have governmental or uh, kingdom power and responsibility as such of ruling and reigning, and taking control, but their coronation makes it look as though 
it does. Or they do. Matthew 2, 1 through 11 portrays the most significant coronation the world has yet to see. And will ever be seen. The coronation was not what the disciples though and those around probably were really looking for and expecting. It was in marked contrast to the kind that the world expects. It was the true coronation of the true king. I will say that. But there was no pomp. There was no splendor. It was a nondescript coronation, sort of pageantry, if you will. This passage uh, by many is called the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we know that it was Jesus' last public appearance before his crucifixion. And it was a very important event in his divine ministry on earth. Now Jesus had been teaching the disciples, it's not that they had not heard it, Jesus had been teaching the disciples about the difference between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. He had clearly told the disciples that he would rule and reign. He had made that clear before them. And not only that, but they would rule with him. He has clearly pointed out what was before him and what would be before him in Jerusalem. That he would be mocked, that he would be scourged, that he would be tried, that he would be beaten, that he would be crucified, that he would be raised on the third day from the dead. Now the disciples, they, you know, they were expecting a, a great military leader, if you will. Someone to ride in on that great stallion, that white stallion, and take over the city and also defeat the enemy and them to be once again the nation that they wanted to be, set free. Not much different really from our culture today, is it? If you think about it, in our culture, power and prestige aligns the one who is in charge. You think about our president even. He flies on a special plane, Air Force One. He is surrounded by his people and his guards. Wherever he goes, usually people are waiting if they know that he's to be there, reporters and others. Those that are supporting him will be chanting and waving banners and flags. Also, there will be some of his people, cabinet people with him usually, and, and then there will be those who guard him that surround him. In going to where they're going, their destination, if it's to be public, they, there will probably be kind of like a parade of cars with different dignitaries riding in different vehicles front and back and, and the guards, of course, before them and after them. And then when they arrive, there will be a lot of cheering, a lot of hooraying and, 
and you know he's treated like royalty and recognized as the one who has authority. But then when Jesus, though, arrives in Jerusalem, we have in Matthew here in chapter 21, he's also being held as Jesus, uh, the, the king of the Jews. He enters Jerusalem as a promised king. He's the one Israel has been waiting on throughout history. He's the focal point, and we know that he is fully God and fully man. We know that, indeed, that he is the Messiah. But his entrance into the city wasn't really maybe what the people were expecting. The disciples still do not understand all that is happening. We have the benefit of having the scriptures and looking back and knowing what happened. They did not have that. So the disciples were a little confused. The people probably in their, you know, uh, crying out Hosanna and all of this, they were still a little confused also. They had been prepared for this event. Here was a Passover. What better time to go to Jerusalem and hail their king? Jesus had been teaching his disciples that, you know, uh, what was going to happen and who he was. And they had gotten bits and pieces of what he was teaching. But they also lost bits and pieces of what he was teaching. Maybe one could say stepping forward two steps and three steps backwards sometimes. Or maybe three steps forward and two steps backwards. It looked like at times they were progressing, but at other times they weren't. So the scripture tells us, it says, Now this took place that, it, it, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, and a fowl of a beast of burden, and the or foe, excuse me. And the, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the coat and laid on them the garments on which he sat. First, the passage makes clear something that's very important. That God is in control of events. And especially the events here of Jesus' life. It says, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Scripture that God gave is being fulfilled. God is in control. Second of all, something that's very important, Jesus was in control of his life at all times. Satan or man made Jesus do anything against his will. They did not have that kind of control. Jesus was in control. It was Jesus that initiated his own coronation. Jesus sent the two disciples to get these animals, it says. Jesus set into motion a series of climactic events that 
culminated in the voluntary, gracious sacrifice of himself on the cross. That event that had been planned really before the foundation of the world. So the disciples were sent by Jesus to find this donkey in her coat. And the reason for two animals, of course, you know, one, the mother, to control the younger, the coat. So the disciples were not asked or were not told to ask for anybody's permission. It had been prearranged. We're told in the other Gospels that someone questioned them, but as Jesus told them, if they did, tell them that the Lord had sent them, and so the Lord has need of them. We also learn from the other two Gospels that the coat had never been ridden, and this is very important. It was a gesture of a gesture of respect and honor to offer such a animal to uh, someone, and we see that that this animal has has uh, been reserved especially for Jesus, a spe- very special person. One author said, "When a king has received the objects devoted to his uh, service." are such as have never been used. The intent here was to show his royal entry as a king, and that it was. That was part of the purpose. The daughter of Zion refers to the the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which was, you know, uh, Jerusalem was sometimes referred to as Zion. And in verse 5, we have the prophecy that was spoken from the prophet Zechariah some 500 years earlier. And Zechariah said that their king would come into the city who would be gentle and humble, mounted on a donkey, even a coat, the foe of a beast of burden. Here is the place where the disciples were a little confused. The people probably also. This entrance of Jesus was in direct opposition to what they expected for him to be riding on a horse. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat. So riding in on a donkey for his triumphant entry did not seem appropriate for any king or, you know, especially for an event like this, they thought. But kings did ride on, on uh, donkeys at times. There are, uh, you know, events where it is recorded that they did. But this was not particularly the mindset of them for them being delivered from the Roman rule. Maybe a white stallion with a beautiful saddle, all sorts of trimmings, but not a lowly donkey made, the saddles made with their attire. This was what God's prophet prophesied. And this is what the Son of Man did. It came about because God is in control. Two things you could count on surrounding Christ and his mission. He was about his heavenly Father's business. He did the will of the Father always. Second of all, 
he also fulfilled Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's first coming here in these verses in the New Testament. It was in the Father's will for the Son in his first coming not to come in splendor, ruling and reigning in power. Jesus did not come in, in wealth, but in poverty. He did not come in grandeur, but in humility. Jesus did not come to defeat and, and, and slay Israel's enemies in war, but he came to save all of mankind. The first time was a time of humiliation, but the second time will be the time of glorification. He was a king like no other king. That meant his coronation was to be like no other coronation. But then we should expect that because God's ways are not always our ways, are they? His thoughts are not always our thoughts. And so we see that he's following through with God's will. God the Father's will perfectly. This was a, a God's sovereign choice. And it was the Son's choice to willingly come as the suffering servant. Once again, Jesus was emphasizing the humility, and this is what we've been talking about, the difference between God's kingdom, man's kingdom, Man looks at it as do whatever you have to do to get ahead. God's kingdom is one of humility, serving, looking out after the other person. You know, if we really had that kind of attitude and if we exemplified it in our society today, we would be far ahead in what, was being, what should be accomplished even in our country today, wouldn't we? We see that Riding on the foe of a donkey also displayed his mission of peace, reconciling the world to God by way of the cross. One author said, nothing could have been more appropriate, appropriate than that the bearer of the world's sin, the sin burden, would enter God's holy city of Zion, ruling on a lowly beast of burden. But I even though the reaction of the crowd seemed like they were ready for this Messiah, this, this king to come, there was confusion here. And I want to specifically point this out. It says, And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and the multitudes going before him, and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. You see, these things the disciples did not understand at the first, and the others, not fully understand his mission. 
in John 12, 16, it says, These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they didn't understand all of it. The Lord was now surrounded by a mass of humanity both before and, and after him. And the multitude spread their garments in the road, it says, and others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them in the road. And of course, the, the garments in the road symbolized respect and, uh, uh, for him and, and their submission to him uh, and to his authority. And then the palm branches were symbolic of salvation and joy, salvation from their enemy. And it seems that the expectations that the Messiah was now before them, these expectations were saying, He will deliver us from our enemy. And they were so great that the crowd became so totally wrapped up and caught up in this human hysteria. The whole multitude seemed to be crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna meaning save now. And it was being shouted by the crowd throughout. They were partly right. But I, may I say there was confusion on their part. They were partly right, but mostly wrong. Jesus was sent to save them, but not from the enemies that they were thinking of. Jesus was sent to save them from the enemy of Satan and sin and hell that's what jesus was sent for you see they thought right in that he was about to manifest himself as conqueror they just didn't understand that he was conqueror more than over rome he was to be crucified manifesting himself as conqueror over sin and death and hell jesus came not to make war with other nations, but to make peace with God for men. The people had no idea of, of the significance of what they were saying or doing, really, and what Jesus was really about. But don't we get caught up in hysteria like that? You see it in crowds all the time. You see it in interviewing people with, with what's been going on with with the movements that are on TV, half of them don't even know what they're doing and why they're there, if not more. They don't know the cause. They acknowledge Jesus as the son of David, rightly dividing or identifying him, not dividing him, but identifying him as a Messiah, just not the Messiah that God spoke of. They cried out, save us now, great Messiah, save us now. Not knowing the salvation that he offered was salvation from deliverance of sin. A few days later, this became evident when they realized Jesus had not come to deliver them from Rome. And what did they do? They cried out, we don't want this man to reign over us. Luke tells us that. And then Matthew, he'll be telling us, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. 
When Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people were stirred and shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some asked, well, who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They wanted to know who this Jesus was that's supposed to be their Messiah, their deliverer. The crowd answered, well, this is the man from Nazareth. You know, uh, they tell us that he's been performing miracles and signs and he has great teachings. He has great following. They were hoping and thinking that Jesus was this prophet who was militarily ready to deliver them. Their confession was shallow. For we know, as I said earlier, in a few days, they'll be crying, crucifying. People wanted Jesus. This, this is so important. Because we play into the same trap. The people wanted Jesus, but they wanted Jesus on their own terms. Don't we see that today? We want Jesus as long as, don't tell me what the scripture says about what I'm doing. That's relative. You want to believe that way, that's fine. I'll believe it this way. Don't bother me with my sin. Don't bother me with my commitment. Don't bother me with what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to live. I've got my Jesus. And I, this is how I feel about it. And it's sad. You know, if we're not careful, we, as believers who go to church and consider ourselves pretty committed do the same thing. We make it a religion that is accommodating to us. You know, our greatest enemy is not the one across the ocean or the one south of us or north of us or the party that is red or the party that is blue. Our greatest enemy is one who pulls us away from God and what he wants us to be. Our greatest enemy is the one who says, go about your business, live it. That's the way the world is. That's the way society is. Just, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Accept it. Don't feel bad about it. One of the worst things that could happen to America, to the church, is for us to harden our hearts and our consciences. You know, we, we talk about the good old days. And days of old were better, and they were in a lot of ways. I, I want to admit to you this. They were in a lot of ways. You see, before I was saved, 
I had strict rules. I didn't understand everything about it, but I had strict rules and guidelines to live by. And my mom and dad told me not to do this, not to go there. If I did this, there would be consequences. There was a right and a wrong. And do you know what? People can, and psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, doctors, whatever, they can say, well, that, you know, that, that just hinders a person. That, that hurts their personality and that hurts their, their, uh, their lifestyle and their, their way of thinking. Well, let them think that, but I want to tell you, I knew when I did something wrong, I was going to be disciplined. I knew that it was wrong. And do you know that when I got into some trouble, God used that and what my parents had taught me to show me that I needed forgiveness for that and I needed to be born again. And I got up one morning by way of the Holy Spirit convicting me I did not go to church. I did not attend church at the time. I was a teenager, and I headed straight for church after I asked per, for permission from my parents to use the car. I stopped at the first church that I came to that I went to as a young child, went in, and of all places, the ushers placed me right down front, right like where Haley is, but in front of her, where I had to pay attention because I, looked, I thought the preacher was preaching at me and, and looking at me the whole time. And if I didn't pay attention, he might call me out. But praise God for that. And praise God for some low ladies that helped me even see the message in song. I had it all warped because I just jumped from one stanza to, I mean, from one section to the next. And I didn't go from boom, verse 1, all the way down. I, I didn't understand that. That's how little I knew about it. But I knew Jesus died for my sins. And I knew that I was a sinner, definitely. And I was convicted there and held on as long as I could till I couldn't hold on any longer. And the Holy Spirit just shoved me out in the aisle. And I walked forward saying, I'm giving my life to the Lord. But you know what? God used right and wrong. Being raised that way and being raised to be disciplined when you did wrong and also being informed about, as a little kid I went to church, about Jesus dying for my sins. All of that God put together. But I want to tell you, if we keep on allowing our consciences to be deadened and for right and wrong to be shifted and not even exist and it become all relative, people will have no conviction or very little conviction and be able to write it off when the Holy Spirit does come to them to convict them. We need to get back to that. I thank God for that. We need to be very careful, people. This is the Word of God. 
No other book. This is the Word of God. And if we are children of God, then we need to be children of the Word. Finding out what God says is right for our life. And allowing the Holy Spirit to tell us, and not us to put God in a box, making Him a convenient character for us to tell what is right and wrong and how we're to live. He's not a bellhop. He's not someone that we control. He is the one to control us. There's no other way. And I want to tell you this. We've seen it like no other time in the last few years, it being accelerated very rapidly. You thought Christians wouldn't be ridiculed for standing up for the truth, wouldn't be made fun of, wouldn't be persecuted in so many ways, maybe not their life taken. We thought it was nonsense, but I want to tell you, it's not nonsense. And we need to be children who are true to God and his word. Jesus came all the way here from heaven. What a journey. To go all the way to the cross and die. What suffering. To be buried and to be raised again so that we could one day have a wonderful journey to spend eternity with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this day, and most of all, I just want to thank you for your love and grace. God, help us as a church and other churches to really see the impact of what happened when you came here and died on Calvary's cross and was raised again for our sins and what you as our Heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior and as the Holy Spirit controls us or should control us what you God want us to do as kingdom people if we're born again and if we're not born again to see the wonderful opportunity of that being born again by placing our faith in you. The grace that you provided through Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.